0: This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again, folks, to the
1: Pat Williams Weekend Hour. We uh, gather like this here, uh, actually on uh, the Power Hour on Saturday, 94.9 FM. That's where you're listening, AM 950, The Word, in Orlando, uh, Alan Dempsey, uh, engineers every weekend for us, and uh, we just could not live without him. And Andrew Herdliska produces the show for us. Uh, sheriff David Clark, Jr., he's with us. Former American law enforcement official, sheriff of the Milwaukee County area in Wisconsin for 15 years. Uh, from 2002, 2017, he joins us. You've seen him on Fox Uh, news so many times and so articulate and uh, so uh, measured in what he says to us and his book is out it's a wonderful read uh i highly recommend it cop under fire uh sheriff great to talk to you thanks for joining me
2: hey it's an honor to be be, on with you and uh, hello to your listeners in the great state of florida
1: Uh, david tell me why it was important to write this book
2: Well, first of all, it's a a great story to tell. You know, I've had a long career in uh, law enforcement, nearly 40 years with two agencies, the City of Milwaukee Police Department. And then I led the uh, Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office as the elected sheriff uh, for the last 15 years. And, you know, as you indicated, uh, I'm on TV a lot, but you got to talk in sound bites on TV. You only get three to five minutes. Uh, to get some points out and what this book does is it expands on all those points and it allows the reader uh, to understand a little bit how i arrived at those positions
1: i was always curious david how uh, those fox opportunities came about how did that first start
2: yeah this started several years ago this is nothing anybody could plan you know as a sheriff of a a large metropolitan area uh, milwaukee county's got about a million residents Uh, in a large organization, about a 1,000 total employees, and started up over uh, personal defense and people being able to defend themselves. And I asked the citizens of Milwaukee County at the time, in a 30-second radio ad, to I reminded them that they play a role in their own safety and gave them some tips as to what they could do. Uh, And it included uh, considering taking some firearms training so you could protect yourself and your family until... Uh, law enforcement arrives. You know, we're not omnipresent in in uh, the United States. I don't want uh, law enforcement being omnipresent. as a police state. And when I did that, the anti-gun uh, ninnies and, and, and others on the left, they went uh, apoplectic over it. And so it caught national attention. And then from there, it went to the war on police several years later, of uh, which I played a an effective narrative role in defending this great profession. And from there, I got involved in, uh, at the request of uh, now President Donald Trump to be involved in his campaign. And uh, that's kind of the story of uh, how this whole thing took off.
1: David, where does your faith uh, uh, play the role in, in your life, in your career?
2: Oh, everywhere. I wear my faith on my sleeve. I talk about that in the book, Hop Under Fire, in a particular chapter of how it guides me, It guides everything that I do. And, and the other thing that it does is it gives me strength, because when you're Put a target on your back like I have for the, the American left and, and liberals. Uh, they really come at you, and it can be overwhelming at times. It can, it can get you down, and you start to wonder and start to doubt yourself, and it's at times like that that I pray. I, mean, I don't pray for things. I pray for uh, strength. I pray for wisdom. I pray for courage to get through those uh, trying times.
1: What goes through your mind and your heart when you hear about another uh, law enforcement officer who's been shot?
2: Yeah, it just rips my heart out. It really does. Like I said, having done this for nearly 40 years, uh, you know, I've had to attend funerals of of, uh, colleagues. And it's a difficult thing to do, especially when you're an executive to plan a police funeral. Unfortunately, I had to do that one time as the sheriff. That's um, one time more than I ever wanted to. But it tears apart the uh, police profession because we go out, we put our lives on the line, we do this voluntarily, you know, we do this willingly. In the end, all we want to know is that if it costs us our lives that our families and our agencies will be uh, remembered and taken care of. And I think the police profession does an excellent job, just like the military, of making sure that the the ones the loved ones left behind uh, are taken care of. And then the other thing I look at is, you know, the circumstances surrounding and and oftentimes law enforcement officers are ambushed. They never had a chance to survive that attack. And then I look at the perpetrator and more times uh, than not, you find out they had a long criminal history where the uh, criminal justice system had a chance to put this individual away because of their uh, proclivities for possessing firearms illegally and using them against other human beings. And they didn't take that Uh, responsibility and didn't put that person away. And then finally, when they do, they claim a law enforcement officer's life. But, you know, that's kind of like a day late, and a dollar short.
1: Uh, Do you believe that war has been declared on the American police officer?
2: Oh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, These these were, were anarchists. I predicted this. I didn't predict it. I called it because I understood this anarchist movement in December of 2014. Uh, on TV and all my media requests, and even in my writings, I do a lot of writing. Uh, I said war had been declared on the American police officer after two of NYPD's finest, New York Police Department's finest, uh, Rafael Ramos and Wenjin Liu were gunned down as they ambushed as they sat in a cruiser by a guy who was claiming revenge for Black Lives Matter. And then, of course, what followed after that, we had one of the deadliest years in in police history for law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty. I saw these attacks coming from the liberal uh, mainstream media, cop haters like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and others who were unfairly mischaracterizing the courage, the integrity, the honesty of the American law enforcement officer, who just goes out every day, uh, puts on that badge and that uniform to make their communities a better place to live. And I thought that by tearing down this profession, they were doing a great disservice to those areas throughout this country that are ravaged by violent crime. And the only law line of defense they have is the American police officer.
1: When did you first realize you wanted to go into this work, David?
2: Well, you're going back, like I said, nearly 40 years. And, uh, you know, I was looking for a career. It's actually my father uh, who who would suggest it. He didn't push me into it, but he'd say to me from time to time, you know, have you ever considered uh, going into law enforcement? Of course, I hadn't at the time. I was um, a very young man, you know, about uh, 20, 21 years old. I entered the profession at the minimum age. You have to be 21 years old to be a law enforcement officer. And so I became a Milwaukee police officer at the age of 21. And um, obviously with the career I've had, uh, it's been very good to me. It's very been very good to uh, my family, and I've had a chance. And this is the highest honor I think that one can can get is to wear the uniform of your community or wear the uniform of your your country like a soldier does. And and then uh, you know the voters of Milwaukee County gave me an opportunity to serve them in the capacity of the elected sheriff. And when you get to do that in your hometown, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'll tell you, I got a big thrill out of that.
1: So where have you settled now? We're talking to you from Washington. Uh, is, is that where you're living?
2: Yes. I started, I retired in September, this past September, not that long ago. Uh-huh. And I started a private sector venture. It's it's uh, DACenterprises.org. And what I do now is uh, I, I work on behalf of several entities, a, a conservative think tank here in Washington, D.C., as well as America First. Uh, Pack America First Policy, which is the official Trump PAC. I'm a uh, spokes, spokesman and senior advisor for America First. And so I get to do a lot of traveling across the country, promoting and speaking on behalf of President Trump's agenda, his vision for America, his policies, and uh, also uh, speaking at events on behalf of candidates who might be running for Congress or up for re-election who also promote uh, and support President Trump. I also get to do a lot of writing research. That's my favorite thing to do is to write and research. Uh, so I do a couple of, um, uh, I'll do op-eds that appear in uh, major posts. I'm featured, I'm a, a contributor to townhall.com uh, and also the hill.com, which is the largest web blog uh, in Washington, D.C. as it relates to uh, Congress. So I get a chance to, in a longer way, other than a soundbite on TV, I get a chance to, to make a point and then support that point you know, with some research, with some facts, not just an opinion, uh, but research-based and fact-based, and that's the thing that I love to do most. So it just made more sense because of the work I'm doing uh, in and around the administration uh, for me to be in Washington, D.C., the area, so I'm living out here now.
1: Sheriff David Clark, Jr., our guest, his book, Cop Under Fire. Uh, More with David Clark right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando.
0: More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 530 on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace. A service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 530 Sunday on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word.
3: Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by making minimum payments? You should know the credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out To settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a large portion of your debt now. Call National Debt Relief at 800-694-7394. 800-694-7394. That's 800-694-7394.
0: Who are some of the heroes in your life? For me, it is those people who give of themselves without any thought about what they get in return. Hello, I'm Alan Treba, owner of American Family Funerals and Cremations and a servant. We want to thank our military veterans for their service and commitment in defending our freedoms and our way of life. We offer special packages and guidance to our military veterans and their families during times of loss. It is the least we can do for someone who has done so much for us. You know us. We are family. AmericanFamilyFunerals.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat.
1: Uh, David Clark is with us. You've seen him many times on Fox News as the sheriff in Milwaukee uh, joins us from Washington, D.C. By the way, uh, Sheriff, uh, tell me about President Trump and your feelings about this man.
2: Uh, What an outstanding individual. I got to meet him early on, long before. I'd say long, probably a year or two before he even announced that he was running for president of the United States. And it just, it was a, it was a chance crossing in, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And he was speaking at the NRA convention. I was speaking there as well, National Rifle Association convention. And I saw him get out walking toward the speaker's door, which I had just left at the, uh, the back of the venue, and then I was being escorted by some uh, NRA officials, and I said, hold on, I want to go over and say hi to Donald Trump, and I walked up to him. I stuck out my hand, I, I, I just started, I said, Mr. Trump, I'm uh, Sheriff Clark, and his immediate response was, David. He, I didn't tell who my first name was, he said, mm. David, I've been watching you on TV, you're doing a great job, keep up the good work. Mm. And then after that, shortly after, about a year later, uh, he approached me about uh, endorsing his candidacy for president, and I wanted to stay out of the primary. Primaries can get to be messy. I wanted the voters to decide, and I, I told him and others that I'd been asked to endorse, I want to wait until uh, the voters have their say as to who the nominee should be. And when Donald Trump—I predicted during the whole time, I was doing a weekly uh, podcast, and I said this was Donald Trump's to lose. The, the I'm talking about the uh, primary. I said he's going to win. He's going to surprise people, and that's what happened. So when he finally did get the amount of delegates necessary uh, to secure the nomination, he came back to me, and I said, hey, I'm a man of my word. I said I would support whoever won this nomination. It's you. I knew it was going to be you, so I'm on board.
1: Now, that's interesting. Fascinating indeed. How does he hold up under the, all the criticism he takes, do you think?
2: Um, you know, the, the, the way that he can compartmentalize, I think, is – is. Um, It's fascinating. No president in U.S. history has come into office and tried to start up a government, and that's when a new president comes in. That's what you're doing. You're starting up a new government, which takes some time. We also, we've always given, when I say we, the the American people, you know, are are, are willing to allow a new president, whether you you voted for him or support him or not, to, to get his sea legs, so to speak, under him, get his government going. And you get a grace period. And it's usually... The first year, maybe even two years, because the American people know how difficult this is. But President Trump came in under this great pushback and resistance, mainly from the liberal mainstream media, but also from the Democrat Party, who did nothing but attack. They made it clear they were going to try to block him at every turn. And in spite of that, he just kept pushing forward with his vision to make America great again. He just kept pushing forward with his policies and his directives. He blocked all that out. And that's what you have to do to be an effective leader, no matter what it is, whether it's a football coach, whether it's uh, the head of a Fortune 500 company. There are always going to be people chirping, mm-hmm. Okay, people who do not have all the information, much, it, much uh, like what happened to me when I became the elected sheriff. People think they're smarter than you in terms of running the organization, they think they know more than you do, but they're not there and they don't have all the information. So you have to have a strong belief in yourself. And that's what Donald Trump, President Trump, possesses. And so he just kept plowing forward. And what he accomplished, more than, than uh, from what I've heard anyway, uh, uh, any president in recent history in his first year, what he accomplished is nothing short of remarkable because of the odds and because of the resistance from the left and from the main uh stream media, which continues to this day, but in spite of that, I think he's done a fantastic job,
1: as you have observed over the years uh, David, I want you to talk about leadership, uh what it takes to be a leader in any field uh, what are your thoughts on leadership? What have you learned?
2: Yeah, I talk about this in the book, too. I think everything rises and falls on leadership. I really do, and like I mentioned, whether you're the coach of an athletic team, whether you're the head of a Fortune 500 company, no matter what it is, uh, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I think some important elements to successful leadership, the first one is an intense belief in yourself and in what you're doing because you're going to always have these naysayers. You're going to always be faced with people who tell you you're wrong You don't know what you're doing and they're going to try to stop you. The other thing you have to have is, is great courage because this can be very trying. It can be, uh, like I said, when you, when you step out to lead, you're basically putting a target on your back and allowing everybody to shoot directly at that target. So you have to have that sort of courage, that sort of uh, belief in yourself. And also you have to have faith. You have to have something to rely on, which, you know, you and I were talking about earlier in this segment. Uh, that you can call on something of greater power than yourself to ask for that strength, to ask for that wisdom, to ask for that empathy. And I think if people know where your heart's at, they might not believe uh, or support all of your policies and everything that you do, but if they can say to themselves, you know what, I know where his heart's at and his heart's in the right place. I know where her heart is and her heart's in the right place. You know what, they'll at least give you a chance.
1: Mm. David Clark, the, uh, former sheriff of Milwaukee County is our guest he's in Washington his book is called Cop Under Fire uh you write a chapter uh, David called the TSA is whistling past the graveyard uh intriguing title to a chapter what what, what is it
2: yeah the TSA the transportation <laughs> uh safety administration security administration uh that that um is responsible for safety and security airports, air travels, ports, so that, that sort of thing. Uh, this thing was a mistake from the beginning. And I know the history of this. If, if people want to read the 9-11 Commission report, it's kind of boring reading, but you have to do it to understand how this thing was put together at the time. Then-President George W. Bush was against forming another huge federal bureaucracy. Most things don't work. Uh, you can look at any other huge federal bureaucracy that we have in, uh, like I said, at the federal level. And I think they're impediments to change. I think they're impediments to success, to follow the rules mentality. So the things that they look for, you got people, you know, willy nilly going through people's luggage, going through their their possessions um, without a search warrant. And we allow this under certain conditions, but it's got to be strictly uh, limited. And right now they're they're going through looking for, you know, water bottles. They're looking for baby food that's not packaged properly. And I've actually seen this happen at airports where a couple had an infant. You could see they had an infant and they didn't have the, their, their baby formula or food packaged right in, in the right lot of amounts and inside plastic bags because they didn't know, right? Okay. So you look. And, and they should have the authority to go, hey, look, these people have an infant. This is baby food. This is, these aren't explosives. I mean, who would take their infant on an airplane and then want to make the plane go down, right? Maybe they'd leave the infant at home or something. But they, they're not allowed to use their heads. It's a follow-the-rules mentality. So they pull those people out of line. They delay them. And this is happening every single day across the United States. And at the same time, you've seen the reports. You've heard the reports. They're missing weapons. They're missing other dangerous contraband that gets through because they're working on the wrong thing. I think that the TSA needs to be revisited. Uh, the, the creation of this thing, I think it needs to be revised and updated, but it's, it's a, such a political football right now that no one wants to touch in case they make some changes and something happens. And then, of course, politically that could be very dangerous. And, and, and I get back to that courage part about leadership. People have to put their own selfish ambitions aside and say, look, I've been elected to come here to to Washington, D.C. to make a difference. This isn't about me being reelected. This isn't about me having a long political career where I can retire with a nice nice pension. This is about serving the people of the United States. And I should do what's smart. I should do what the people want and what they're asking for. And And we should be doing less of what the people don't want. But that's not the mindset. And so you have this huge bureaucracy costing billions of dollars a year and growing their budgets and they're just not uh if you look at it what they're doing is not thwarting uh hijackings it's not preventing terror attacks at airports but it's mistaking activity for accomplishment so they go through this routine right the the security the patting down of people uh elderly people making elderly people get out of a wheelchair for heaven's sake so they can check underneath the Uh, you know, inside the the seat of the... I mean, this stuff is ridiculous. Not only is it ridiculous, I find it insulting to the American people.
1: My guest, uh, Sheriff David Clark Jr., uh, his book is called Cop Under Fire. I want you to comment about the chapter you write called The Left's Dreaded Enemy, Black Conservatives.
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating chapter, and it's kind of my experience uh, in being... You know, I'm a conservative. What does that mean to me? couple things. It means I support a limited government, uh, less regulation, uh, military superiority, safe streets here at home. I believe in the rule of law. I believe that the Constitution protects individuals, not groups, meaning you don't uh, get your constitutional uh, rights for membership in a group. These are individual rights. And then I believe in more rights for the state. So it's those five tenants. Okay. And I happen to be black. And what does that mean? uh to me while well, the left looks at me and says hey you're black you're not supposed to be that you're supposed to be this 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 and this to which i say you don't get to define me i'll define who i am and once you do that you're working against, against their narrative as to what blacks should be it's a large voting block, and they don't want anybody distracting from that i have a powerful voice i have the platforms and so that scares the heck out of them so as a black conservative Although, again, I said, I just see myself as a a conservative American. The left has pointed me out as a black conservative. Then, of course, that comes with the attacks that I get to this day, by the way. And uh, that goes along with it. But, again, you know, another good part of leadership is you got to take yourself out of the equation. And you got to realize this isn't about you. So I have to remind myself, David, these attacks uh, that I'm I'm getting, this isn't about me. Forget about the self-pity. This is about freedom and liberty of everybody living in this country and future generations this country's been great to me and my family and I owe the government I not the government I'm sorry I owe the american people a return for the opportunity that they've given me i don't have this entitlement mentality that the government owes me something i owe the people of this country something
1: how about god is not the enemy but he's being attacked
2: david yeah, this is about that chapter uh is about this this move by the the American left toward a more secular society. And you know, God's been marginalized, removed from the public square. You can't uh you can't even mention God in the public square. Uh you know, you look at this this push toward um, being a more secular society. I think it's led to uh, uh many of the problems that we're seeing in this country in terms of uh, people not caring about any uh, each other anymore, there's all this violence that goes on in these urban centers, because they don't have a sense of spirituality, because God is, does not exist in their life. And I'm not going to tell people what religion to believe in, but you must have some spiritual direction, um, you know, as, as part of your human makeup. Otherwise, you're going to engage in behaviors that are unethical. You're going to engage in behaviors that are criminal. You're going to engage in behaviors um, that in most instances are, are downright um, abhorrent.
1: Sheriff David Clark is our guest. Um, final topic. Uh, the Second Amendment isn't just for white people. Uh, what are you writing in that chapter?
2: You know, it's a fascinating chapter on the history of the uh, Second Amendment. And if you look at gun control laws today, their origin was to keep guns out of the hands of black people. If you go back to the black codes um, back before the Civil War and even during Jim Crow, it was unlawful for um, uh, black, either the, the the slaves at the time uh, or even the you know in in, in uh, uh, the Reconstruction period, to possess uh, arms. And the reason was because then they couldn't defend themselves against lynchings mobbing, kidnapping, so on and so forth. So gun control actually has its roots in in racism. And so I point this out. But what's happened over time is the left has done a very good job of erasing that history. I mean, you had people like Frederick Douglass. You had people um, uh, even before him that fought for the right to be able to defend themselves. Well, you have to have arms in some instances to do that. So. When I look at the history of the Second Amendment as it relates to uh, freeing of the slaves, black people really should be very pro-gun, very pro-Second Amendment, but the left has done a great job of, of separating them from their history, erasing that, that uh, aspect. Uh, you know, you had people during the um, uh, period of time I talk in the book, the abolitionist movement, Um, and and actually arming slaves so that they could escape, so on and so forth. But we've been separated from our history, and because of that, we're anti-gun, and it it boggles the mind.
1: Sheriff David Clark Jr. has been our guest. Cop under fire. It's a good read, folks. I've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, 94.9 FM, and AM 950 The Word in Orlando.
0: More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The word. savings on prescriptions, real personal service, free delivery. Get out of the big box pharmacies and get into the pharmacy store. Here's what your neighbors are saying about the pharmacy store in Apopka. The pharmacy store in Apopka is seriously amazing. I still can't believe I saved more than 60 bucks on one prescription over what I
1: was paying at CVS. Big savings on prescriptions, real personal service, free delivery. The pharmacy store is really different. We've been going there for a year. Customer service is top notch. We're done with wall and CV.
0: The pharmacy store, big savings on prescriptions, real personal service, free delivery.
3: At the pharmacy store, I never have to wait for more than 10 minutes for my prescription. And when I can't make it, they have free delivery.
0: Get out of the big box pharmacies and get into the pharmacy store. Call now to switch your prescriptions and save at the pharmacy store. 407-703 three five nine five one four zero seven seven zero three five nine five one get out of the big box pharmacies and get into the pharmacy store in apopka
4: i'm just so upset i i'm having so much trouble getting to sleep Only well, i'd wake up in the middle of the night worrying all over again i'm wearing down there's no one i trust no one i can open up to but I've got to find someone I can talk to. I can't keep going on like this.
0: She found help and so can you. We are Faithful Counseling, the world's largest platform for faith-based professional counseling. Our Christian counselors are all licensed, trained and experienced, qualified and certified by the state board. But more importantly, we share your Christian values. Available 24-7 by text, messaging, phone and video conferencing from the comfort of your own home. We'd like to invite you to try your first week Free by going to faithfulcounseling.com and use the invite code word HELP. That's faithfulcounseling.com and use the invite code word HELP to get your first week free. Help to get your first week free. Faithful Counseling, we're here when you need us. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat.
1: Our guest in that first segment, Sheriff David Clark, Jr., Talking about his book "Cop Under Fire," Billy Jous and her family live in Naples, Florida. Uh, her husband, a long, long-time Major League Baseball coach, and her book is out. It's called "Making Room: Doing Less So God Can Do More." Uh, Billy, wonderful to catch up with you. How you doing?
4: I am great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be talking with you today.
1: Why was it important? Uh, to express yourself in this book what was your mission here
4: Ah, uh, the mission started out just really a, a a journey that i was going on after my pastor asked a question at the front of the church of what is god doing in and through you and Being the list maker that I am, I began a list in church very defensively, right? Okay, I know what God's doing in and through me. But when I went back and looked at that list, it was a really shallow list. It was, I am reading my Bible. I am going to church. I am serving in a soup kitchen. You know, I am helping the homeless. I am doing Bible studies with the wives of of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I looked at it and thought, That's what I'm doing, but what am I allowing God to do?" And it was um, it was very interesting because at the same time I was helping a friend of mine. She was writing a book called How to Write a Novel in Ten Minutes a Day. And I was her guinea pig because I'd been writing devotions for years, but not a real writer in my opinion. And so that writing experience with her and that question of what am I allowing God to do collided. And in that spiritual journey I started writing. And I really realized what a gift God had given me and a love he had given me for writing so I started writing about this spiritual journey, and it was it was, all together came to a point of seeing how stagnant and complacent my life was as a good Christian woman. Mm-hmm. I did good Christian things, but I had to look at it and say, why am I doing it? So the reason this book came about was because during that time, God asked me to write the book. I felt like this was what he was calling me to do i was entering the empty nest didn't know what was next for me a lot of questions going on and i just kept doing the next thing he asked me to do and it ended up with this book
1: talk to us about busyness and how we should deal with it
4: (laughs) well as we all know there you know you can see online 10 ways to get rid of busyness 10 things to do I don't believe, this is my personal opinion, I don't believe we will ever get rid of busyness in our life. But what we have to do is focus our sight on God, on seeing Jesus in that everyday craziness, chaos swirling around us. To see Jesus in that and draw closer to Him every day. And that takes us from being in a chaotic, out-of-control busyness into a more focused, making sure that what you're doing, the meaning in your life, is focused towards Jesus.
1: And and how about distractions? That's another mm. issue in your life, right?
4: Distractions. That That chapter came all too easy for me, because we are so distracted in so many things. If it's the internet. I tell a funny story in the book about how I was going away with my husband, and um, I left my youngest son in charge of a virtual um, life that I had. This game I was doing online, and it had a dog in it, and you had to feed the dog every day. And, and when I came back, the dog had run away because uh, virtually, because he wasn't fed. And I'm screaming at my kid, "What did you do? My dog ran away!" And, and my middle son sitting on the couch, the, the more laid back of my children looked at me and said, Hey, Ma, you realize that's a virtual dog, right? And mm-hmm. I thought, mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, I'm ruining a relationship, not literally, but in that moment, relationship with my baby boy because of a virtual dog. There's a distraction. So and- that when writing that chapter, I started looking at all the little things and big things that take away from our time focusing on God in our lives. And, you know, being in baseball, it's funny. People often ask me, oh, your husband's a major league coach. Do you like baseball? I am one of those crazy girls at 12, 13 years old. My mom would drop me off at the at the Little League or Babe Ruth team playing in my little small hometown of Tarboro, North Carolina, and I'd watch baseball. I love baseball. I try to keep it at a bay all season, but when September rolls around and you're in the hunt for that playoff position, I get obsessed. And I forget to pick up my Bible because I'm picking up my phone and looking at the standings and looking at who, who won and lost the night before and all of that. And and is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. It's just really putting the distractions of our life in in line to the priority which should be seeking God in all that we say, all that we do, and all that we
1: are. What do you write in the uh, area about motherhood?
4: Uh, I write a lot on, on motherhood. My, I, I raised three boys almost alone, and that's not a diss to my husband, but women in baseball, we spend about 80% of our year alone because our husbands leave in February and they come home in October. We pack up and go for the season, for the summer, to spend time with our husbands, but our husbands – Leave it noon one two o 'clock in the in the day and don 't get home until eleven or twelve at night and that 's half the month the other half of the month they 're on the road, so you don 't see them so that 's just our life. I tell baseball women all the time this is our normal it 's abnormal for others this is normal for us so for motherhood i 've had to take those normalcies of our life and and put it into play with my kids because I can't say oh you acted up you wait till dad gets home because that might be two weeks from now so I had to be the quote unquote bad guy but I also had to be the encourager the love the love the hugs the you know making sure they're connecting with dad all of that so to take our kids through life pointing them to God not circumstances and and, and to love them through the ups and downs, because I'm a true believer, no matter how much we give God to our children in their days of growing up, there comes a time where they have to find it on their own, and it should be when they're 12 or 13, but it rarely is. There are some great kids that find it then and live it their whole lives. Mine have seemed to stumble a little bit when they go off to college, and that's fine. Letting them see God, continuing to show them the love of the Lord through your relationship with them as a mother, that is my passion when it comes to our kids. And, you know, I raised three boys, so it was a lot of craziness. David and I also were foster parents, so we fostered a few kids while we were living in Boston when David was with the Boston Red Sox. And that was a whole new learning co- curve of of loving and guiding and leading these wonderful children that God had chosen to be on this earth. And their circumstances were much different than my kids had been. So... I have a lot of experience in this mothering thing, and I just I try to write about continuing to to, to point the kids back to God. The other mothering aspect, I feel like I'm, a, I'm moving out of this aspect into the grandma aspect, but I feel like I'm a mother figure to the wives in baseball, and that has been such a blessing to be able to live life you know, six and tenths months a year, and hopefully more if we head to the playoffs. But spend that time with these girls in the stands, some being very young and just getting in, some being new wives, some being new mothers, you know, some with husbands that are very, very successful, and some with husbands that are struggling, some that had very successful husbands that are now struggling, and trying to be there in that mothering fashion and that mentoring fashion of loving them and pointing them to Jesus.
1: Uh, Tell me uh, about... Uh, your children, what's become of your sons, what are they doing?
4: Yeah, it's a, I call it the side effect of baseball. Because we've lived in 15 different cities and states, cities and towns around the U.S. and also in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, my kids don't have deep roots. So my oldest um, played baseball, undergraduate at East Carolina University in North Carolina, mm-hmm. had a great time, graduated in three years undergrad, had two years left. So he decided to go to UMass Amherst and get a grad degree. He got an MBA and a master's in sports management. <clears throat> Excuse me. He got drafted by the Washington Nationals out of UMass and went and played for the Nationals in the minor league system for about a year. And he got released. And we're thinking, oh, well, now he's going to go, you know, use that degree. And, no, he came home after getting some calls from other teams and said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get someone to pay me to see Europe. And we're like, "Uh, okay. He had contacted every baseball team in Europe and that he was able to play for, and he got contacted back by one in Germany, in Munich, and he went and played in Germany for two summers, got an opportunity to play in Australia for two of
1: our winters, their summers, so he's still pitching, he's 27 now.